Winning comes in all shapes and sizes. It's different for everyone. One thing is certain. Every day there's an opportunity for a win. Just like scratchers from the Virginia Lottery. Everyday grab-and-go. Everyday giftable. Everyday fun. It's where anticipation meets instant gratification. Like the new Virginia Lottery Scratcher High Roller Blackjack with a chance to win up to 10 times your prize. Now, that's an everyday win. Drive to a retailer near you. Odds of winning any prize, 1 in 4.16. Contracts. Salary caps. Why do our favorite teams make some of the moves they do? It's usually the money. It's time for the business of sports with Andrew Brandt. Hey, boys and girls. I thought I'd record another podcast for the week because there's so much aftermath of the Supreme Court decision about gambling and so many questions I'm getting I know earlier this week earlier this week we had a podcast with Dave Purdom of ESPN, the gambling guru there. Dustin Gauker of Legal Sports Report's been following this gambling issue for years and years. Got a really nice response as kind of a definitive look at what happened on Monday, the incredible ruling from the Supreme Court, but just thought I'd give you some more thoughts and then I've got some questions. As always, people can call in, leave a Google Voice for me and I'll answer it here on the podcast. So I've got some questions I will answer. I think I got four of them. And then I'll give you the number so you can call in, get your question, ask Andrew, answered by me on the Business of Sports podcast. So let's dive in. This, Listen, I'll give you a little bit more on my insights, my thoughts about what happened here. I mean, I've been busy since Monday, uh, probably have done 50 to 75 between radio, TV, podcasts, all about what's going on. And the reason is this, you know, I teach sports law. I've done it for many years. I run a sports law program at Villanova. The number of cases that reach the United States Supreme Court that involve sports, even tangentially, you can count on one hand. I mean, there's just nothing happening there. And here we are. And speaking of which, New Jersey lost at every level getting up to the Supreme Court, the lower courts, the circuit courts, Christie 1, Christie 2, all the names for these cases And lo and behold, they won at the highest level. But the NFL, the NBA, they should have been prepared for this loss because against the advice of the Solicitor General a year ago, May, one year ago this month, Supreme Court took the case. Uh, The petition for certiorari was granted, and the Supreme Court eventually heard the case in December. So it doesn't take a legal scholar to realize that if you're going to take a case— at the highest court level in the country, you're not going to go with status quo, the same thing that's been going for six years, since 2011 when this was originally filed. That's not happening. So what do you do? Well, they did something. And I thought maybe they would, uh, you know, allow New Jersey to have in-state betting. But basically they went further than that. They really invalidated this 1992 law passed by Professional Amateur Sports Protection Act that basically disallowed sports betting everywhere in the country except, of course, grandfathered states like Nevada. So with that, we have a brand new world, an open frontier, and the leagues are a little bit behind because the leagues hope for a federal legislation. The leagues are hoping for a national resolution through Congress, but it didn't happen. And even Justice Alito, in his opinion, said one of the reasons they're doing this is that Congress chose not to act. And so the leagues had until basically May 14th of 2018 to convince Congress to act, and they didn't. Now, of course, the leagues can still try to get something done with Congress. 
have started a bill. It seems like Orrin Hatch is behind him, senator from Utah, introducing a sports betting legislation. But in my mind, good luck fast-tracking sports betting legislation through Congress at a time where so much is in the news about Congress trying or not trying to get things done. Good luck with that. So now the NFL, the NBA, Major League Baseball, Hockey find themselves a little bit behind the curve because they didn't get it done on the one branch of Congress, uh, the legislative branch, and here they are being told by the judicial, the Supreme Court, there's no appeal from the Supreme Court now. That's the end of the line that this is going to happen. So where is it going to happen? Well, it's going to happen in New Jersey right away. They're the ones with the law. They're the ones trying to do this for six years. They're ready to go, I would think, within a month at the latest. We'll have betting at Monmouth Park in New Jersey, which has already been outfitted, million-dollar investment for a sports book. Beyond that, you hear about states lying in wait, like the one I'm recording in, Pennsylvania, as well as West Virginia, Mississippi, Delaware. Maybe they're the next four in line. And then there's a lot on deck. Maybe those four, maybe more, will have this in place by the NFL season. And then down the line, I think it's important to note, we're not going to deal with 50 states here. I would think by this time next year, maybe 10 to 15 states have some form of legalized sports betting. So we're not talking about even a majority of United States states uh, getting into this, at least in the short term or the near term. But it is a big deal because it's happening, because we're bringing gambling out of the darkness into the light Will this put away the bookie in the back of the barbershop? No, that'll still happen. But maybe their VIG goes down because they have to be competitive. Instead of 10%, it's 5%. Maybe this creates some kind of less of a stigma. It really seems to be along the lines of marijuana, where the stigmas are being broken down, where the barriers are broken down. You have marijuana legalized recreationally and medicinally around the country. The mores have gone down. Now, let me say a word about morality. I get it. You know, I get it. There are going to be people that are spending sums they cannot. There are going to be people that are losing sums they cannot. There will be compulsive gambling. And hopefully the laws on the books of all these states will have money set aside to treat problem gambling and to make sure it's not for minors and make sure we don't have... uh, Uh, sharks against minnows, all the things we talked about with fantasy. But here's the issue. Whose job is that for us to clean up? I mean, listen, there are a lot of things people do that injure them uh, in the way they do them. Obviously drinking, obviously smoking, marijuana, whatever it may be. But we are slowly breaking down to a society of a little more choice Frankly, I think people are really hurting themselves with the foods they eat, but I won't go down that road. I realize I'm a very abstemious eater. I'm into diet and fitness. I don't like the way people eat uh, uh, nationally, generally in this country, but you know, I'm railing against the machine there. I get it. But morality is an issue. I host an event on this topic. I had not picketers, but certainly people handing out anti-gambling materials outside of the hall that I handed, that I held the event. So it's something we realize. And I think that has to be said here. We can't ignore the morality issue, but we also have to understand mores of society are changing. And indeed, uh, speaking of the NFL specifically, we have a conduct commissioner who's been very concerned with player and team and owner and first-class conduct 
and now is being told that that conduct will include gambling legally in the states that allow it because there's certainly nothing they can do to stop it right now, absent federal legislation that at least is going to take a while if it has any chance at all. So that's a point about morality. The other point I want to make, speaking of the NFL, is this incredible fan engagement tool. This is going to make the NFL money. This is going to make base basketball money, baseball, hockey. And listen, I don't agree with Mark Cuban that it's going to double franchise values, but it's going to increase them. It's going to increase viewership. It's going to increase media rights. It's going to increase sponsorship rights. Every league is looking for the same thing finding new revenue streams, and lo and behold, here we have one. We got it. So we have a new revenue stream in gambling. How much, how long, how far, who knows? But it's happening. And then there's the next frontier of mobile and online and in-game betting. Oh, my God, can you imagine all these people sitting in their seats in the stands betting on the next touchdown, the next pass, the next play? There are 110 plays in a football game. You can bet on all of them. What about that? So this engagement is real. And I mentioned this before, the Nielsen Research guy that I sat with on a panel said the average non-betting fan watches about 15, 16 games a year in the NFL. The average betting fan, almost three times that amount. So that is powerful gold information that is going to catch the attention, already has, of course, of NFL and Major League Baseball and owners. It is the only, not the only way, but the primary reason... You have fans in all of these sports watching games they have no rooting interest in. Why is that happening? Betting. It's an incredible fan engagement tool. Everyone knows that. Which also brings up the question of what is the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, hockey going to get out of this? And we hear about integrity fees. And I make a joke about these integrity fees because they fought gambling for so, so long, claiming integrity, but here they are wanting integrity fees. I I guess I understand. I'm trying to figure out what leverage people they have to ask for these fees from states, basically getting a cut. And I guess the leverage is they can say it's their content, it's their inventory. But the terrible precedent for all these leagues is that Nevada has never had an integrity fee. And I get them, them asking, but maybe they don't understand or maybe they do what I've been told by so many gaming operators, which is... The sports book is a tiny, tiny slice of the overall casino or overall book revenue, overall gaming revenue of these places. So giving the leagues any kind of fee is money coming off the top of a very slightly, if at all, profitable business. Because you think about it yourself. You're in a casino. You don't necessarily want to go to that sports book, but you may stop in and throw down a bet. But it's not the reason you go to a casino. It's an add-on. It's a luxury. It's an ancillary item. So whatever you're feeling about asking for an integrity fee, if you even think they have a shot at it, uh, it's going to be a tough sell just from the business point of view because the sports book part of these casinos or part of these operations in states is just not much at all. So that's going to be a problem. And then, again, we're talking about negotiating these integrity fees. If I'm a state... I would say, why in the world would we pay that? And the leagues would say, like I said, it's our inventory, it's our content. And the leagues would say, or the, the, the leagues would also say, we can help your integrity, we can do this, we can make sure it's above board. 
But all these states are going to have to have their own integrity units. They're not going to rely on the NFL's integrity people. And speaking of that, I've said this many times, the NFL, the NBA, the NHL, Major League Baseball, if they haven't already, they certainly need to hire these heads of integrity. I call them CGOs, chief gambling officers, or I call them gambling czars. And right away, if not yesterday, because it's coming. And two of these leagues already have teams placed in Vegas. So they have to be ready for this. I'd be shocked if they're not there. And if they're not, that's negligent. Who are these people? I don't know. Maybe they come from Europe, where it's so commonplace, where they have controls on players, on coaches, on referees, on vendors, on sideline personnel, and how to handle this. Because if they're truly worried about integrity and nefarious influences getting to these players or coaches or referees, they'd have controls. Because that has had the same opportunity of happening in in an illegal market, and now can happen in a legal market. So, Again, the world is changing. I wrote about gambling years ago when they shut down Tony Romo in that fantasy football convention. I got a call from the highest level of the NFL saying, we read your article. We liked it. We're trying to become more, and here's the word, we're trying to become more evolved on the issue. Well, they are certainly evolved now, and they're being forced to evolve because The highest court in the land has said basically sports betting is now legal. Have at it states. Number one is New Jersey, and here we go. Take it off. It's going. It's the train is is left the station. And how are they going to handle it? That to me is the great unknown. And listen, I'm asked a lot about this the future of journalism in this area. Yes, these gambling gurus are going to be popular. I will write about this and talk about this on TV and radio and podcasts. From now on, I'm not the guy for point spreads. Don't come to me for that. I've seen so many people start following me on Twitter from betting sites and whatever it is. That's fine. But I will provide business, legal, and professional insights that don't involve things like spreads. So, yeah, it's a new frontier for everyone. And if people are a little afraid of it or don't want to deal with the gambling side of sports, I get it. But I always go back to the Billy Bean line from Moneyball, spoken by Brad Pitt in that movie, when he looked at those scouts who weren't getting up to speed on what the new thing was, adapt or die. (laughs) To me, that is a great phrase of life. It moves, adapt or die. And speaking of my little uh, instructions, time to answer some questions. So here we go. You can call in, leave your question for me every week. Now I'm going to be answering these. The number to call, 484-416-416. 5654-484-416-5654. I will answer your questions on the Business of Sports podcast, and I think I'm going to do four tonight. And I'll start with a name that I like, Andrew. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about financial management for players. Working at a CFP firm, I'm always interested in expanding my client base into the world of athletics. Do most of these agencies have financial management arms attached to them, or is it more common for them to make referrals? to people they worked with in the past. Thanks. You know, Andrew, the agent business is very territorial. People don't like giving up any control over these players. But on the financial side of it, agents do have to see that because in most cases, you don't want to have that liability. You represent them on the contract and the marketing. In terms of the financial management, the general mode of operation is to turn it over to someone else to do that, usually with a referral, yes. Or you get a player that already has the financial aspect covered, 
or you get a player that doesn't need anything on the financial aspect because he's making minimum and doesn't have that need yet and just keep it in a bank on a money market account. But this is a crazy business. I know a lot of people on the financial side trying to get into representing athletes. The problem they have is, A, what, what is their special sauce to represent athletes on the financial side? How is it different from all the others? And B, what is their relationship with agents? Agents trust them to work with their players on kind of a Chinese wall, hands-off basis so the agent's not involved if things go south. And most importantly, how do they have the best interest of the player at heart? You know, you see the Morgan Stanleys and Merrill Lynch's all getting into player uh, money. That's obviously a growth area for these companies. It's all about trust. And the bottom line, to answer your question, is the vast majority of agents don't get into it. Some of them do the things like pay their bills, but that's a little bit paternal. I don't know about this paying the bills stuff. The players need to leave, learn that right away. Uh, but in terms of pure money management, the referrals is the much more likely route. Hi, Andrew. Uh, this is Josh from San Diego. I had a question about how you got into the agent business. I wanted to know how you landed your first job at an agency um, and how that worked. And then also um, how you would recommend other people uh, seek employment at an agency, whether it be sports or any sort of entertainment um, agency. I'm going to be graduating college here soon, and my, I have my sights set on uh, an agency and I'm uh, in Southern California. And ideally, I want to um, figure out the best way to get employed at one of those places. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, Josh. It's tough because I get asked this every every week, if not every day, how to get into the agent business. The easiest way is, is sort of be a college roommate with a number one draft pick. You know, that's usually the best way. Other than that, again, I talk about this phrase, special sauce. What is it that you have that others don't? Maybe you have some incredible analytical tool that can help show players how they can be different. Maybe you have some incredible way to separate yourself from players. But I ask young people all the time, okay, I'm a top five player in the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball draft. Why should I go with you? And if your answer is, well, I work hard and I'm, you know, I'm into sports, forget it. What is your special sauce? What will separate you from everyone else? I was lucky. I was a tennis player growing up, tried to play some pro tournaments, ended up as an intern at a big tennis agency, which also happened to represent basketball and football players called ProServe at the time. And I transitioned to football and basketball. So I started in a big agency, and pretty much my whole agent life was with a big agency. So I had that cover. I had that ability to get in front of people. It's tough starting out solo. I guess the best advice is what I tell my students is just try to intern to get some experience with agents. But again, agents are going to be extremely territorial and protective of you getting close with some of their players because, of course, you could leave and take them. Again, the only advice I give people is find your special skill. Find a way to be more than say, I want to be an agent. Say I want to be an agent because X, Y, Z. And say I'm going to be a better agent than the next guy because of X, Y, Z. And say I know this area better than anyone and show it in a writing sample. Those are some ideas that I have. Next question, Brian. Hey, Andrew. It's Brian in Charlotte. Love the podcast. Um, my question is with L.A. off the table and the other cities, St. Louis, San Antonio, etc., not really viable options. What will NFL teams, uh, what cities will they use to 
uh, get leverage with current cities for stadium deals or what other methods do you think they'll have to resort to? Uh, same question for the other leagues, but the NFL specifically. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, for 20 years, the stalking horse in negotiations for NFL teams was L.A., and now we have two teams in L.A. and, and a team in Vegas. So that's off the board. When people are talking about needing better practice facilities or be- better stadiums, NFL owners could either implicitly or explicitly talk about, well, there's L.A. out there, but that's no longer there. I don't see the market. I really don't. And then when they talked about Carolina potentially moving, where? They're not moving to St. Louis. They're not moving to Oakland. They're not moving to San Diego. They're not moving to Toronto. So where? (laughs) So I don't see the leverage in these other places. Now, in other sports, maybe there is more opportunity to leverage other cities as potential moves. But with the placement of franchises in LA and to some extent Vegas, I think the NFL owners have lost their leverage stalking horse. I mean, I'm not... Again, I, I feel bad saying this about St. Louis, San Diego, and Oakland, but I just don't see teams going back there. They've lost teams, and they've lost them because, whether you believe it or not, their deals weren't good enough. So if their deals weren't good enough to keep the teams there, I don't think they'd be good enough to have a team move. And Where else? Toronto, the Buffalo Experiment, that was okay, but they don't go back there anymore. Mexico City, now. Nah. I mean, London, we talk about, I think that's years down the road. I think London, you get a home schedule. Eight games a year, three different stadiums, 16 teams a year. Every team goes every other year, competitively balanced. That's the next frontier for London, not a team. So that's where we are. All right, last question of the pod for this one. It comes from Chad. Hey, Andrew. My name is Chad, and I'm calling from uh, Wisconsin. Uh, Let me start by saying I really enjoy the podcast. Uh, I was a big fan of you taking us behind the curtain with the drafting of Aaron Rodgers uh, with your conversation uh, at the Sloan Conference. And my question was, I'm wondering if you're willing to set any light or provide us any details about once Aaron landed in Green Bay and Brett was still there. For those of us that are Packers fans, we know that that was uh, somewhat of a tumultuous time especially when uh, the front office and or the coaches decided it was time to move on from Brett and Aaron to be the starter. seems like that has been swept under the rug and there's not a lot of information out there. So any uh, light you could shed on the subject would be great and keep up the awesome work. Thank you, Chad. And, you know, listen, some of this (laughs) – I keep talking about a book and everyone keeps talking to me about a book. Maybe one day when I stop writing all the time and writing weekly columns, I'll write a book. And some of this will save for the book in terms of Brett and Aaron and the change and the divorce and everything that went on then. But I will say this. I get it with Brett. I get it with Tom Brady. I get it with Ben Roethlisberger. Nobody likes seeing their replacement come into work every day. And some of it's more stark or less stark, excuse me, than it's reported as some kind of uh, real dispute and all these kind of things. Whatever Ben Roethlisberger said about Mason Rudolph, whatever Tom Brady, whatever happened with Jimmy Garoppolo, and what I saw with Brett and Aaron, listen, it's not easy. I get it. Forget sports. What about business? What if you had to come to work every day, drive in, go to your office, and in the same office, because like a quarterback meeting room, same office is the guy that's going to take your job, maybe next year, maybe the year after, probably at most in three years. So that's not easy. So I get it. And with Brett, I saw some of that. You know, I had Matt Hasselbeck 
as a client way before that. Matt was the hot guy for a while, and their relationship was good. They're friends, but you know there is that edge always about, hey, are you going to take my job? And that's true not only for quarterbacks, it's true for every position, especially with high draft picks. So I get it. And the the other thing with Brett and Aaron, you have two diametrically different backgrounds and personalities. You have country Brett from southern Mississippi, guys, guys, slapping towels in the locker room, funny as all get out, always with the one-liners, with the burps and farts and everything else, one of the funniest guys. Uh, kind of a out in your face sense of humor, and then you got Aaron, the wry sense of humor, the the wit, the dry wit, the California cool, just Mister Chill. <laughs> so you put those two together. I don't care if you're quarterbacks or whatever. It's not going to be peaches and cream right away. Now, listen, I will say this: I saw this relationship for three years, and I saw it really get some growth. I really did. And of course, it changed when Brett retired and wanted to come back. But as it got towards that third year, I really saw some growth there, some real mutual respect. And these are two of my favorite guys I've ever been around. And I was not playing favorites. You know, when the when it happened, I was hearing from Brett's camp. I was hearing from Aaron's camp. I was trying to mediate the best I could from the outside So it was an interesting time. Again, more to come in my book whenever that happens, whenever I feel like, maybe get some um, Cabernet in me. (laughs) But uh, that's all for now. That has been a fun podcast. Here we are. So you've got my insights, further insights, on gambling, New Frontier, and all sports with the Supreme Court decision this week and answering your questions. Once again, if you want to leave them for me, I'll answer them on the pod. 484-416-5654. Thanks for listening. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn. Give us a good rating if you would and give us some good comments. I really love it. Uh, Wherever you hear your podcasts. Follow me on Twitter at Andrew Brandt. I'll be back next week with another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Thanks for listening to the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. You can also get additional insider insight by listening to the Ross Tucker Football Podcast, Fantasy Feast, Even Money, and College Draft Podcast, all at rostucker.com or wherever podcasts are found. If you love scratches from the Virginia Lottery, you'll love the high roller blackjack scratcher with a chance to win up to 10 times your prize. Look for it at your favorite Virginia Lottery retailer. In fact, you can drive there right now. Now that's an everyday win. Odds of winning any prize, 1 in 4.16.